Welcome back, guys, to another roundtable for the JPS Education Portal. We are here with Mackenzie Baker, as always, and we're very lucky to be joined by Angus Bradley. Welcome, guys. Nice Thank to you. meet you, everyone. And Angus, start us off, mate. When it comes to program design, which is the topic that we're discussing today, what are your general philosophies or ideas uh, when it comes to putting together a program for uh, training, whether it's um, you know your head uh, space that you're going into when putting pen to paper or finger to button, um, you know, what kind of concepts and things that you're thinking about that are most pertinent when designing a program uh, for your clients or yourself? So first thing I'm always thinking of uh, when it comes to programming design is just meeting the individual needs in front of me where they're at. Uh, and from a general programming perspective, the other thing that I'm always bearing in mind is just the sheer amount of things that I've seen work so my programming philosophy very much falls in line with the good enough from a science-based principles perspective. And then the artistic side comes in just trying to meet the logistical uh, and personal preferences of the individual in front of me. Um, and again, really relating it, I guess the best way I can sum it up is the anti-fragile approach, make good enough programming decisions. But I think one of the biggest threats to the system of good program programming design is the predictive aspect of periodization. Um, and I'm just trying to remove all the predictive qualities that go into traditional periodization and have much more of that reactive approach. So map training out one week at a time and then just react to what's happening in front of me rather than trying to be this predictive wizard. And I think that's the key trap that a lot of people who are students of periodization commonly fall into. Yeah, I like that. I think there's been a big paradigm shift or at least in certain circles, I don't think it's been across the board within the fitness industry um, for people to have more of a bottoms up approach um, where they're, you know, auto-regulating their training based on individual needs and context within a given session, training week. Uh, because as we know, I think, you know, the, the human body is, you know, very, very unpredictable um, from day to day, week to week. And especially when we're dealing with a lot of clients um, or individuals who don't have a very predictable lifestyles. Right, those periodization models have a little more utility in in the sense that you can map out training, um, you know, proactively maybe two or three weeks at a time. If you have an athlete who is on the same sleep schedule, on the same you know nutritional plan day in day out, their workloads managed very tightly, and they're maybe at the top or top echelon of their sport. But when it comes to everyday lifters, there's just so much unpredictability. I think you really need to have. Um, that auto-regulated approach where you're working with the individual on their uh, their acute needs as well as their long-term uh, needs as it relates to their goals and whatnot. Um, and I really like that. So yeah. when it comes to putting together a, pr a program with that in mind, um, I guess, what are your next steps? Like what's the framework or a concept conceptual model that you have um, with that as sort of the foundation for your decision-making when it comes to, I guess, putting the the program together in terms of like volume, frequency, intensity, those kind of things, like where does your head go from there? Um, a lot of it is just prior training history. And then obviously having a discussion with them about how well was their prior training, meeting their needs, and then sort of any sort of changes that they would like to make. Um, I also like to get an idea of, I'm very inspired by, we know James Smith, the fat loss coach. Do you know James Smith, the thinker? Uh, he's very into like organizational structure and sporting teams. And he has this view of strength and conditioning coaches where they stack up 
in a pro sport team organizational hierarchy where, you know, they're trying to manage all these loads at the end of the day uh, that with like a certain dose of conditioning hypothetically, but then someone will mouth off at training and then the head coach will come in and just make everyone run laps. And then the SNC coach is just tearing their hair out because they're like, no, my perfect plan is just being blown up in smoke because the head coach has no actual understanding of the SNC coach's role. And that's how I view my role, especially when working with the general population, or even when I am working with a professional athlete, I have to respect where I am in the hierarchy because programming at the end of the day is all about dosing stress, but I'm actually not the primary person who's in charge of the dose of stress that my client receives. Again, even at the level of the general population, I view my client's family as head coach, and I view their boss as assistant to the head coach, and then I'm running third string. So all of my stuff and my level of reactivity is usually based off that. And going back to what you said as well, you acknowledge that there was very much two camps in this programming crowd. Like there is the people who've bought into this bottoms up reactive approach. And then there's critics of that approach who sort of think that it's too flexible. It's too soft. It's just for people who want to make up excuses and things like that. And I see where they're coming from. So what I'm also trying to do from the initial stages of program design with my client is find where they're at on that sliding scale, how much reactivity, because some people do have more relatively predictable lives. Like a lot of these people who compete in bodybuilding shows, they effectively treat themselves like uh, professional athletes and they'll almost like forgo certain aspects of family and work life to adhere to a program. So I can be less reactive and their life will be a little bit more predictable to me in that regard. Yeah, and I like that. I think oftentimes with this stuff, the fitness industry pendulum swings back and forth, um, you know, routinely, no matter the topic, whether it's nutrition, you know, if it fits your macros versus intuitive eating, for example, like it's always swinging back and forth. And I think, um, as you rightly pointed out there, the key is that context matters, um, you know, how far that pendulum should swing for that individual. And I also think uh, that there's many situations where a combination of both ideologies is quite useful because if you take the very prescriptive, proactive planning, um, you know, dogmatic application of a periodization, like that's for most people, not a great idea. Um, however, I think some of the fundamental principles or concepts related to periodization are quite useful in terms of planning, organization, understanding that you know, we need to have goal-oriented training and we need to think about you know, various timelines and work towards those. And I think that stuff's uh, quite useful. I just don't think that um, you need to have your you know, sets, reps and loads planned out um, you know, six weeks, eight weeks at a time with you know, these very detailed uh, macro cycle plans you know, that most people are just not ever going to follow because they're going to miss you know, 30% of their sessions for the training here. Um, yeah. Excuse me if this is a bit of a cringe metaphor, but the way I view it is sort of like, you know, you want to learn the rules so that then you can break them and apply them a bit more artistically. The same way, like you learn all these classical music rules and then, you know, you can go and play jazz later. Whereas, you know, if you're just trying to play jazz, but you don't know what rules you're breaking and when things turn into a bit of a shit show quite fast. Um, one other variable as well that I do consider from the get-go with programming as well, a concept that I borrowed from Lan Jovanovic that I think is another thing that is just very overlooked with the approach to programming, traditionally speaking as a whole, is this concept of minimum viable programming. 
which is also, again, on a sliding scale, toying around with the amount of structure that an athlete requires, or again, even a member of the general population, because your more advanced clients may require more structure and certainly benefit from more structure. But someone who's having their first weight training program, do I need to prescribe anything as specific as like the specific type of squat variation that they're doing, the specific type of bicep curl that they're doing? Like, and what the concept of minimum viable program is about is giving them the minimum amount of structure required to actually have productive training. So I'm not saying just go in there and do whatever, but no one has ever thought like of playing with structure as a sliding variable. So yeah, just toying with that as well. Even I have a lot of quite advanced athletes. And again, they're an advanced athlete, but they're not that advanced in the weight room because they've had that minimum exposure and they do have a really chaotic lifestyle with their sporting schedule. So I can also being able to play with the amount of structure I give with those athletes is a phenomenal tool because I'd be like, man, honestly, if you're performing a good squat pattern once a week, a good hinge pattern, a vertical push, a vertical pull, horizontal push, horizontal pull, I'm like, man, that's a pretty sweet week of training. Absolutely. And I think that concept is useful. And I think if we look at how that sort of maps on to the training lifespan, I think with uh, beginners, for example, they probably need more structure. Uh, I think they need more uh, specific um, you know, programming because they, they don't have that knowledge or experience to go, oh, I know what a squat pattern is. They it's can't like, choose, yeah. You need to give them structure. And I think, um, yeah, this, the sliding scale will vary across the training um, you know, lifespan. But I think as people become more advanced, they have more knowledge, experience, and they hopefully become better decision makers um, you know, within their sessions. I think that that's definitely a useful concept. And some of the things that I've, you know, again, learned how to sort of break the rules with these kind of things is I program for my clients, um, you know, choice exercises a lot. You know, I still think that's a very, I won't say taboo, but I don't think a lot of coaches would have the, I guess, the balls to program choice exercise because then the client feels like, well, you want me to make the decision? What the fuck am I paying you for? And I think that's the dynamic that sort of, um, I guess, forces coaches into that very structured, periodized, um, you know, programming methodologies because they feel like that's what they're paid to do. Um, whereas I think as you become a little bit more experienced and knowledgeable, you actually realize that that's not what good coaching is. And you have that confidence and humility to be able to provide less structure. Um, and I think that's where the creative side is really cool. So, um, you know, I'll just share one of my examples. I'd love to hear some of yours. Uh, what I do with a lot of my gem pop clients is I program exercises, um, and I rank order them in terms of priority. So priority one, two, or three. Priority one exercise, like you have to get these in each week. Like this is sort of the minimum that I expect you to do, which we've agreed on based on your goals and commitments and all the prior conversation. Um, then priority two exercises are like do these as much as possible. Priority three, it's like these are just a bonus. If you know you've got more time, you're feeling good, like all those kind of things. And I think that avoids that whole notion of, well, if I can't train then, you know, I'm a failure. And, or if I can't do a whole session, what's the point? Um, and it provides a lot of, I guess, um, autonomy for the client, which is a really useful thing. Um, Mackenzie, you don't have to uh, sit in here any longer. I think Angus and I are good for now. we got this covered, brother. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Mac. Let's, uh, let's how these concepts, I want to know how these concepts or um, ideas we've discussed would play out in a nutrition sense and like what your ideas are there. Yeah, so um, I really like a lot of things that both of you blokes said there. And I think a lot of the 
uh, themes are very much applicable in the, the nutrition sense, such as uh, respecting autonomy and, and realizing that that is a trait of a good coach rather than, because we're not, we're not, we're not applying a program to a person. We want to coach a person. Okay. Um, so generally speaking, I actually think the whole concept of programming in nutrition is actually not really that applicable. It's, it's rarely a concept that actually applies too much in the real world. And this can be for numerous reasons. The first one is that, you know, when people think about nutrition programming, they're like, okay, so what's the ultimate goal? Okay, well, uh, it might be to gain muscle and then get leaner. But it's usually involving this thing of like a weight cycling or programming deficits to surpluses and things like this. But that's actually not that like that only takes up a small amount of what nutrition coaching is. You know, often the way I like to view it is you're a problem solver and problem solving involves working on problems. It's completely separate to this high, this idea of periodizing surpluses and deficits. You know, you hear people talk about, oh, you know, we do an eight week diet phase and the deficit is this. And then it's a two week, you know, diet break, maintenance phase, whatever you want to call it. And I think like, it's good to know that stuff and know generally what's considered best practice. And there are principles that you should consider. So for example, you know, if you had an athlete in their, in their preseason and they needed to lose five kilos in, in two months or whatever for the competition season, you know, there's general rules like, you know, take them out of a deficit a week or two prior to competition season. Don't put them really in a deficit during the competition season. Most of the time, there are general principles there to consider, but generally speaking, like this whole programming thing lacks a lot of applicability because even if you lay out a plan, chances are, you know, someone's going to go on holidays. They're going to get injured. Something's going to happen in life. You know, they're going to encounter a nutrition speed bump and this freaking, you know, periodized perfect plan is thrown out the window. And as you blokes know, a plan is only as good as someone's willingness and ability to actually adhere to it. So there's two concepts there that fall in the golden behavior criteria. Willingness, do they want to? And if you haven't respected autonomy, if you're not coaching the person, if you're just applying a program to a person, you haven't respected autonomy. So they're probably not as willing as you would like or want to think in terms of their adherence potential. Uh, and they might not be able to do it because like I said, life throws uh, speed bumps in the direction of your perfect periodization plan. But like I said, yeah, there are general themes and I guess uh, rules or guidelines that we can take from what in theory is considered the perfect periodized approach to nutrition, depending on the context. But yeah, I think often it's got to be reactive and I think there's nothing wrong with having a general like, okay, so, you know, this is what we're laying out as the blueprint for say the next three, six, nine months. But uh, obviously it's subject to ongoing evaluation and adjustment. I think that's a really important thing. Um, and another thing to consider is, you know, we don't want to just throw needless parameters at someone. We want to meet the client or coach the client again, meet them where they're at. Uh, because if we're throwing needless parameters, we're creating needless restriction. And this is only going to tax their self-control, which diminishes their adherence. Uh, and generally, it's just going to make the whole process harder than it needs to be. More friction means, you know, it is harder to stay on track when you get thrown, uh, I guess, uh, a speed bump. And then we have that all or nothing thinking that can result. Oh, because I didn't follow the coach's program, you know, because I didn't follow the specified uh, phases of deficit and surplus. Therefore, you know, I've stuffed it up. Uh, it's all out the window. I might as well just throw in the towel. And these are things that we need to consider when we are talking about this concept of programming, I feel.
Yeah, and I think there's also a, a you know technical distinction to make between like programming and periodization, right? Because programming is the uh, I guess the acute decisions around the training variables, whereas periodization is more longer term planning, management, and all these kind of things. So I think coaches and, and individuals who are like you know, programming for themselves want to be programming more than they are periodizing um, and assessing outcomes and making decisions based on, you know, those outcomes at that time, rather than trying to, you know, predict the future and plan things out in a great level of detail. And I also think like, it's really interesting, um, Angus, I'm sure you've read John, John Kiley's work. I was just about to ask if, yeah, yeah, I yeah. love him. But a lot of people, yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, a lot of people don't know the history of periodization. Like it came from scientific management theory in like the industrial revolution. It's like, it was designed to increase the efficiency of like manufacturing and like production. When well, Hans Selye was a tobacco industry shield. Yeah. And he was, you know, fucking around with rats and things like this. Like these things are very outdated and they're, and it's important when you take a model and its application or utility is in one domain. And then you try to take it across and like have that cross pollination of ideas. It's like, it doesn't always work out perfectly. And I think that's what we've really started to see here is that this longer term planning around training probably isn't as beneficial as what we once thought with the Soviets and all these kind of things when they did some, you know, bullshit, um, you know, investigations on like who got more gold medals back in the eighties, I think it was, or something like that. And they found that the lifters or the um, individuals who had more periodization got better results. It's like, this is not, you know, uh, also, had more gear. Wait, yeah, well, quick, I, that, this is something that I bring up a lot in my periodization rants with people. So everyone stereotypes the USSR as the most successful weightlifting team in that period. And it's like, yeah, they had the best periodization. They had the best drugs. Wrong. Bulgarian team actually beat them. And all they did was max out every day. And again, people say the success of the Bulgarians was just off the basis of drugs, but they had less good drugs and they had no periodization and they smoked the Russians. Well, there you go. Fun fact for you all. So Okay, so with this periodization and programming distinction, I guess, um, you know, out of the way, I guess, what are the decisions uh, that you're making on a day-to-day basis with your clients? And where do you see, uh, we'll start with you, Angus, most of your, I guess, coaching decision-making, um, you know, being based on like, what are the variables and factors that you're looking to most? Like, is it, you know, stress, recovery, like how are you measuring performance? Like, what are you looking at to then inform those decisions uh, around your programming? Okay, so the main problem that I'm trying to solve with programming is I'm trying to string together as many productive weeks of training as possible without having to deload them and without injuring or something negative happening to my athlete. So my goal from the start is to develop hypothetically their perfect week of training, watch them go through that week of training and then react to that. And again, I will be making micro adjustments to that program from day dot. So I set the ideal micro cycle out and I tinker with it every single week. Then what I'm trying to do is it's going to take a while to settle into that program and then take a while to start building momentum. And I'm just looking and waiting to observe a drop off in momentum from my perspective, but then also through communication with the athlete. Maybe I'll notice a little bit of a dip in performance. I'm like, oh, are we getting to the end of this productive level of training? And I might need to deload my athlete. But then I talk to him, they're like, no, no, work was just crazy this week. It wasn't the training stimulus don't need to deload me or anything like that. Or maybe they're like, no, no, I felt like absolute garbage. Can we have a deload, please? And I'm just doing it like that. 
I like it. And I think uh, you and I at one point last year, I believe, both um, had some similar um, social media posts related to just deloads being unnecessary. And again, um, a lot of people, you know, deload every fourth or so week following the traditional three to one work to rest paradigm. And it's fucking garbage. It just interrupts, interrupts a lot of their training momentum. And I think, um, yeah, building momentum is the key to good programming, whether it's training, whether it's nutrition, it's like, you just want that momentum to build up. And I guess a question um, for you there is like, when you're assessing drop-offs in performance, um, how are you defining performance? And does that vary depending on the goal? Because at least for me, when I have, you know, powerlifter versus say a bodybuilder, I'm looking at performance in a very different or through a very different lens um, because it's obviously not quite the same uh, for the, either of those uh, training goals. So how are you looking at that then? Majority of the people who I'm working with have a very busy competitive schedule. So their primary goals will exist outside of the gym. So honestly, I'm willing to be certain performance decrements in their gym, provided they're still feeling good showing up on game day, because ultimately I am just trying to potentiate that. Um, something I'd like to go back to and touch on, though, saying that you nailed just this idea of trying to progressively overload people to the point where they need a deload. Something I'm doing again with these athletes, but then even with my few strength sports athletes that I train is I feel like people have this misunderstanding of what progressive overload is in general as a phenomenon. And I think it's certain terms that have got people confused about this like this idea of like super compensation like the idea that that conjures up in my head is that i have to absolutely smoke someone just as aggressively as possible to the point where i hospitalize them with a deload and then they just emerge like jesus out of the tomb after three days with all these gains whereas like the aggressive the best part is that people think that like just because they say deload or start a deload that they're going to be recovered and like yeah. after five days like they're fine it's like it doesn't yeah. work like that like you know usually if you're training that hard you probably need you know two weeks to yeah. you know, bounce back from that ridiculous training and understanding that progressive overload is an emergent phenomena off the back of exposure to a sufficient training stimulus. So rather than just aggressively waving up over four weeks and cooking them and deloading them, I am very much trying to, you know, stay in the pocket and just stimulate them less aggressively. And even if it takes me longer to wave them up to the top of their potential, I'm fine with that because I think the byproduct is more consecutive weeks of productive training versus trying to wave them up aggressively. You end up deloading them so frequently that you're almost proactively writing off sometimes like 15 to 25% of the training calendar well in advance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally on board uh, with that approach to training. And I think also like it comes down to a fundamental conception about what the objective in training is. Like we're trying to increase fitness and fitness obviously means something different depending on your training goals. Like fitness for a bodybuilder is more muscle. Fitness for a track and field athlete is faster times or, you know, better performance in their you know, given sport. Fitness for a footballer, that's, well, AFL football is just a bunch of fitness qualities thrown together really and doing something stupid with the footy. Um, but it means something different for anyone. You're trying to increase fitness. And basically the idea about peaking performance is not so much trying to chase this elusive mystical goal of super conversation, but it's managing fitness fatigue dynamics and, you know, lowering fatigue as much as possible to express the full capacity of your fitness. And I think that's where people really don't understand, um, you know, what training and progressive overload should be. It's like progressive overload is increasing your fitness over time. Like that's just going to happen if you get in the stimulus right in the first place, 
And hopefully if you get the stimulus right, you're not getting so much fatigue that, you know, it starts to eat into your uh, performance abilities based on you know, your fitness levels. So I think that's a really important, I guess, concept for people to understand when it comes to programming and what they're trying to chase. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I find it so interesting that the way most people get trained through these block periodization models, like people sign up with the trainer because they want to feel fit and strong. And then the way that their trainer programs and have them feel fit and strong four days a year, because they're just taking 12 weeks to peak them versus I think what lines up a little bit better is like, again, what I end up doing with most athletic populations when they're in season where I need to come up with a programming structure where they're peaking on a weekly basis. And I'm very much using the micro cycle as a tool to potentiate their game day on the weekend. While long, long-term as well, providing a sufficient training stimulus to actually progress in the gym itself. Yeah. And um, just so I'm Time, the time scale of observing those performance improvements is just a lot longer because you're you're waving up and down every week. So instead of seeing over the course of six, eight, 10 weeks, like performance going up sort of incrementally uh, week to week, it's like you're probably going to see it go up on one day out of that seven days, but you're looking on, over, on averages over time, which is I know something, uh, Mackenzie, you're quite big on when it comes to our nutrition. It's like averages over time. Are you doing the things that you need to do to progress? So uh, Angus, I'll let you finish off and then we'll get on to Mackenzie for his thoughts here. Oh, just suggesting that people explore other periodization models outside of block periodization. One that I'm particularly bullish on is just running a vertical integration style program where you do almost have a block structure emerging. So what vertical integration is to me is like some focus on all relevant training qualities year round, but just a little bit of an emphasis on one of those particular qualities and then periodically rotating which one of those qualities we're emphasizing, like I said, without missing any of those training qualities. And I think a lot of powerlifters inherently do this. It's like they they still have their their main lifts and it's just moving that needle. It's just biasing one or the other. And I, I really like that. And I think especially with gen pop clients who, you know, they want to get bigger, stronger, faster, leaner, healthier, sleep better. Like they want to, you know, chase multiple different goals at once. It's like, I think that's an important discussion with those clients is to say, okay, you know, rank order your uh, goals right now. Like which one is most important to you now? Do you want to build more muscle now? Do you want to lose fat now? Move that needle. Um, and then place a certain amount of emphasis on it accordingly. So, Mac, what do you uh, have to say about some of the discussion we've had so far? Yeah, um, I think it's unbelievable how many common themes there are here with a crossover into nutrition. So, for example, you know, I think of a maintenance phase in nutrition like a deload in training, and often kind of they go hand in hand. Um, but the idea of just throwing a maintenance phase at someone because that's what the periodized plan or the program specified um, is you know, usually not necessary. Um, I also see a lot of value in the idea of what Angus said, which is trying to attain momentum and get and really stacking up you know, how many productive weeks can I get before a deload is needed? How many productive weeks can I get before a client struggles with adherence and or might need to take a break or foot off the gas for a bit or something like that? And I think that really comes down to, I'm going to say intelligent programming, um, where you think about, okay, what are we trying to achieve? What are the, the principles that we're trying to nail? And it might be something like, well, we might be looking at a principle such as an energy deficit or a sufficient amount of protein, or we might be looking at certain behaviors uh, that correspond with trying to solve a particular problem. So it's kind of two different parts, but I think the overarching theme with how we program in nutrition should be maximizing longevity 
um, you know, not like long, long, not necessarily forever longevity, but just sort of of the particular phase that we're thinking about or the particular period we want to work on something. We don't want to make something so difficult that it's sort of like, oh, I can only do this for a couple of weeks and then I need the, the nutrition deload in little inverted commas. Um, we want to try and program in an intelligent way that goes for bang for buck um, with that emphasis on averages over time, because that's the thing that's really going to help someone move to where they want to go in the long run. So yeah, it's just insane to me listening to you guys chat about shit, like this is a crossover, that's a crossover. And even the 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 chat on fatigue, you know, we want to manage fatigue so we don't need to, you know, do a deload unnecessary or prematurely. It's like, we can think of fatigue and nutrition as maybe like uh, adherence fatigue or some people call it diet fatigue. I think adherence fatigue is probably more applicable because usually the reason why people... Uh, you know, start to hit more of a plateau in kind of like an, an assertive, we're going for something phase, we're going for something phase is not because of some physiological met metabolic like down regulation or something. It's usually because adherence starts to suffer. So I think uh, adherence fatigue is probably a more uh, real world applicable reason uh, why we want to think about, you know, intelligently programming with uh, an emphasis on bang for buck and efficiency and only making shit harder, as hard as it needs to be. Yeah, I really like that, Mac, and I agree that there's a lot of carryover. So I guess a question that I have uh, for you both, when it comes to applying these uh, concepts for younger coaches, right, because obviously we've all been in the game for a while and it sort of takes going through that process of following that dogmatic black and white prescription or doing things in this way and this is the way to do it, to then having you know multiple experiences to draw on realizing right from wrong and to be able to differentiate um i guess various concepts and their utility in certain uh contexts how would you advise young coaches who are trying to uh have a more auto-regulated based uh coaching paradigm within their uh, programming system um to communicate that to their clients because i think this is where it becomes really difficult because if you have a client for example it's like yeah we plan out loosely oh we're going to die for eight to 12 weeks we might have a maintenance phase people don't like that people do want to be told from their coaches what to do how do you navigate those situations like even with my contest prep athletes i'll use this guy as an example um you know i planned for him to once he lost around this amount of weight or achieved this kind of look and i was like okay we probably need a diet break here because he's going to be feeling the pinch a little bit um but he kept asking me when, when am i having the diet break like and I'm like, man, like roughly when we lose this much weight, like after this amount of time, I'm not like, it could be earlier, it could be later. It just, just depends. We've got to see what happens. Um, and, you know, I could see that that was getting frustrating for him. And a lot of people would in that situation, maybe go to another coach who's going to tell them exactly what to do. Because as human beings, we want to outsource a lot of these decisions. We want somebody to say, this is when we're doing it. This is how to do it. Go do it. And we don't want to have to think, right? And it's when there's that gray area, a lot of people can find that frustrating um, and turn to those coaches who are giving them much more concrete, assertive, definitive answers. So how do you, I guess, get the buy-in and confidence from your clients um, whilst dabbling in the gray and being a little bit more, hey, we just got to see what happens kind of thing. I think Mackenzie Baker already kind of touched on it loosely in his previous answer when he was just talking about how much overlap there is in the principle-driven approach between what me and Sam are doing 
and then what Mac is doing. One of my personal philosophies is that this is something that also applies on a greater level. There are so many industries that are much more sophisticated than the fitness industry that is very much emerging that have been handling these uh, dynamic systems um, and, and unpredictable qualities and also balancing these aspects of both art and science or the objective and the subjective simultaneously. So music is something that's heavily underpinned by mathematics and science. There's very much objective aspects to like what notes go together, but you would never write a song and tell someone this is the best piece of music you've ever heard in your life. You'd be like, I know that this is decent music enough according, according to the scientific principles and the mathematics that underpin music, but what do you think about it specifically? And are there any adjustments I would make? Same goes with food. Like objectively, you kind of know what goes into chicken soup. You'd never serve it up to your mom and be like, mom, according to food science, this is the best chicken soup can get. You'd be like, I know this is good enough chicken soup to eat and nourish you. What do you think of it as far as the flavor? And I view our field as the exact same thing. Like with the scientific principles of training, I know I can cook up a program that is good enough, but then I need to serve it up to my athlete like it's a song or like it's a plate of chicken soup. And be like, now, what do you think about this subjectively? And how do you get the, I guess, oh. the client to buy in, right? So how, so, so that's the fundamental question here is like, how do you find uh, a way for the client to buy in when they probably come from a background of having a coach who isn't like, hey, here, I've cooked this soup. You try it. Let me know what you think. They're like, no, no. Yeah, not having a woke coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah this is, absolutely. Mackenzie's laughing because I, I call him woke all the time. Because <laughs> certainty gets buy-in. And I think as reactive coaches, we need to have empathy for that. And the same way we have sliding scales on all of these things, maybe for the sake of it, I'll just tell my client, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, sure. Deloading in four weeks. I know we're not, but I understand the psychological needs of my client. And I'm just here to serve my client. I'm in the meantime, I'm going to try to educate them. And I'm going to try to slowly morph their worldview into uh, accepting uncertainty because long-term I find value in that and long-term understanding the perspective that training is first and foremost the hero's journey I'm absolutely here to problem solve but the same way you were talking about like eventually I do want my clients to be able to pick their own bicep curl uh, the same way I use strategies like RPEs PE-based programming. There are programming tools that I have inbuilt into my system to slowly have this education-based yeah. process built into it but like you said meeting the client where they're at with that and sometimes just pretending that you have a fixed yeah. plan. I, I often do that, do that. And it's a, it's a tricky one because you don't obviously mislead your client, but I think that's the, the, the art of coaching, right? Is to understand when to give the client what they want and when to give them what they need. And hopefully over time morph their, I guess, uh, perception around training to be heavily you know, biased towards the, oh, I just do these things because that's what I need rather than I've just got to get what I want all the time. Because we do deal with a lot of clients who are coming to us and they, they think they want us to coach them for what they need, but they really just want us to provide them with what they want. Um, and it's, you know, getting that um, nice carryover, which I think is challenging. Mac, anything that, um, you know, you do to help get that buying um, as, as a woke coach, how, how do you um, approach it? Oh, frothing, frothing, Jen. So um, it's definitely a balance between uh, giving the client what they want, respecting their autonomy, but also giving them what they need. And I actually think this is where the MI spirit. So Here comes macro coach, Steve, <laughs> coming out. <laughs> This is where the MI spirit really comes in. And you're not a follower, you're not a leader, but you're a guider. So it's a middle ground approach. Resisting so, the writing reflex, I think, is huge here as well, because that's like automatically going to push them towards like thinking that you're this authoritarian, um, you know, coach and you just have the answers. 
Yeah. So that would be more of a leader where you're just telling them what to do. So the MI spirit is like, you're in the middle, you're a guider. You're not just letting them do whatever they want, but you're not, you know, enforcing things. You are respecting autonomy, but you're also using uh, interviewing techniques and certain questioning, Socratic questioning to, if a client wants to do something that you know probably isn't best for them, or they're fixated on this idea that they need a certain periodized program style situation, you know, you do want to lean into that a little bit because you do want to satisfy their needs. Buy-in is obviously important. It's an important part of adherence. And, you know, if they don't have buy-in because they're not getting what they want from you, they might go to macro coach Steve down the road, even though that's not what they really need. So exploring their beliefs. Why do you think you need this, you know, perfectly... Uh, rigid macro target situation why do you think that we need to specify exactly how many weeks we're doing a deficit and then a maintenance phase for um you know i feel like uh exploring those beliefs and then helping them the, the client really come to their own understanding of what is going to be best for them after you've asked for permission to share your thoughts as the as the expert but you've asked for permission but then you're engaging their autonomy you're eliciting their thoughts and their ideas. So you're providing, you're allowing, you're, you're giving yourself the opportunity to provide your input in a non-aggressive or uh, I guess resistant or kind of like, you know, this sort of way. Um, and you're then respecting autonomy because then the client is given the opportunity to say, okay, with this in mind, what approach would I like to take? And often through this sort of questioning uh, process, this interviewing process, clients will come to the realization that their beliefs are actually misleading or not the most productive thing they could do. And then they'll be more open to what you've thought about, but it has to be done in a certain way where you're not kind of trying to create conflict with them. You're not debating them. Um, it's a, it, it's very important that that is approached with uh, a lot of respect and empathy for the beliefs that the client might have at the time. Yeah, I like that. And I think from a coaching or programming um, point of view, one way that I've certainly seen the benefit of that is to try to figure out what the client think is, thinks is practical and what they're able to do uh, with their training and then trying to highlight to them, well, this is probably going to get you a better result. This is like more, you know, quote unquote, optimal or closer to optimal. This is what you're currently doing. We probably need to do a little bit more of this, for example, um, and then trying to find that middle ground of where they're at. But I don't think that you can get to that point without having those discussions. And I think um, there's heaps of carryover between training and nutrition in that uh, sense, but I don't see a lot of coaches really trying to interview their clients when it comes to the programming side of things. I see that happening more and more on, in the nutrition space, uh, but with the programming uh, side of things, I don't see a lot of coaches really interviewing their clients about like, you know, well, which exercises, you know, do you really like, or, you know, how many times a week do you think, it, you know, it's feasible to train for how long? I think these are really important questions. Yes, mate. It's funny because coaches will whinge and bitch and moan about clients like negotiating their program or their prescription. And it's funny because a lot of these coaches call themselves evidence-based, but the evidence actually suggests that respecting autonomy, showing empathy is better in all ways. Science uh, has gone woke. It did. Yeah. So literally, you know, getting pissed off at a client for negotiating, you know, your prescriptions, that's not evidence-based. And then saying things like, well, I'm not an empathetic coach. I just want to work with coaches who are robots. Like, or you might say something like it's irresponsible for the client to not be able to maintain their habits after the comp or after the diet phase. And, you know, they're irresponsible for rebounding. 
And what you're doing there is you're making them internalize the, the idea of them being a failure. And when someone feels like a failure, their willingness and their motivation to try and do the things that will help them maintain those results gets diminished. So by being that non-empathetic, you know, blaming the client style of coach, you can't call yourself evidence-based. It literally directly conflicts with what the evidence suggests. Now, with that being said, there's another end of the spectrum where it's like, it's too wishy-washy. It's like, oh, you can do whatever you want. That's not what the MI spirit is. Like I said before, it's a spectrum. You have leading and then you have uh, following. We sit in the middle, we guide. Mm, yeah, love it. So I think I'll add to that as well is I think that the average personal trainer just thinks that their client's an idiot. They're like, oh, they don't know that the bicep has two different parts to it. Like, oh, can you believe my client came in and asked me about this food documentary they saw on Netflix? Meanwhile, their client's like an elite accountant or something like that. It's like, they definitely got the hardware to compute this stuff. They just need someone to explain it with some decent principles to them. Yeah, no, I agree. Very good. And I guess, uh, you know, to round up this discussion, I guess, if you had any parting wisdom for young coaches out there when it comes to programming, Angus, we'll start with you. Like, what would you be your, I guess, number one tip for young coaches when it comes to trying to understand, uh, I guess, the complexities of programming? Learn the basics, but then as soon as you've learned the basics of program design, get your head outside of the sports science bubble. Because again, like one of the fields I like to turn to and a lot of where my programming principles are derived from uh, economics and probability problems. And ultimately what we're trying to do is just manage resources here, whether it's money or whether it's fatigue. Yep. Yep. I like that. Mac? Um, learn the basic underpinning principles. Learn about what is in theory considered optimal, like the sort of more, um, you know, numbers-based approaches, you know, how you periodize a perfect programming, like learn about that stuff, understand it. But then once you have that understanding, say, radio, uh, I'm not going to apply a program to a person, I'm coaching the person. And how you coach a person doesn't need to always be this, you know, this, this, it doesn't even need to be this idea of programming. It can just be, okay, well, what does the client want to work on? What are some problems that we can solve together? Have a list. Which one would you like to start with? Right. How do you want to do it? So you attack that one for a couple of weeks or however long it takes or when they're ready to move on the next thing. And then, you know, you keep going down. That can be programming. So kind of exp expand your idea of programming being just about like, okay, so I program these macros and these calories and uh, I program this meal timing and I program these supplements i freaking hate it when personal trainers or, or nutritionists are like i'm prescribing supplements it's like bro, prescribe you know, like a doctor habib all right yeah um and, and just kind of expand your concept of what programming is and remember you're coaching a person an individual a real person with thoughts and feelings and your role as a health coach which is really what we all are or a performance coach is to make their life better mm. Yeah, I like that. And I would just piggyback on that and say that I think it's also hugely important for coaches to not only learn about programming, but also how to influence behavior change uh, with your clients and to be able to push people um, to not only do the things that you're asking or you know have agreed upon for them to do to achieve their goals, um, but to also learn how to make them better over time um, and to you know keep getting more out of them. I think um, that is hugely important and it ties into a lot of the points that Mackenzie raised. But thank you guys. Uh, very, very uh, thought-provoking, useful discussion. I think this one uh, will be well-received by uh, listeners, uh, Angus, 
appreciate you coming on mates uh enjoy for having me. uh the gong the, i didn't even i couldn't believe that wollongong had an airport to be honest i only found that out about a year yeah, ago yeah mate we've got everything down <laughs> here it's pumping that's, that's fucking also unreal. home of 20 24th best point break in the country what's that i'm not a surfer you gotta explain this to me mate Sand and point if you park in my spot i'll slash your tires is, is that a surf spot is it yeah. I can't wait to come and surf Sand and Point and paddle up the inside of Angus. Heavy, heavy local scene. No, I won't have it. I won't have it. I won't <laughs> even have to lay a finger on you. The crew will get you. <laughs> Easy. Thank you, Mac. And lads, we'll speak to you next time. Dance. Thank you.